This presentation was from UX Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Our next speaker this morning is Dorian, who's going to be talking to us about design of education experiences or educational experiences. Please join me in welcoming her to the stage. Thank you, Dorian. Thank you. Hi, everybody. Now, I'm keenly aware that I'm about to kind of drag, no, maybe usher you from this beautiful big picture that Andy gave us right down in some, to some really designerly dirty details. But hopefully we're all UX people. We're, we're used to handling that kind of thing. Hopefully that's all right. So yeah, I'm Dorian Peters. I'm creative leader at the Positive Computing Lab. And I also work as a UX specialist for the Brain and Mind Center and the School of Education and Social Work, all at the University of Sydney. So I want to talk about design for the learning experience today. Um, I specialize in design for well-being and design for learning. And I want to point out that design for learning is not just about schools or universities, but actually it's also coming back to those micro-interactions and those micro-moments that happen to be micro-learning moments. Um, and so even if this is onboarding or you're introducing something that's new, innovative, disruptive, people have to learn how to use that. So I think this kind of stuff really relates across the board. So I hope you'll find a connection to whatever you're working on as well. But I do, I am curious, um, how many people here are working in uh, areas that more traditionally refer to themselves as learning? So maybe that's schools, children, yeah, um, universities, TAFE, uh, workplace, workplace learning is a big area. Yeah, okay, great, that's really good to know. And then of course there's all that kind of self-directed consumer learning apps for learning things, cool back there, okay, that's fantastic. Okay, cool. So hopefully there'll be something here for everybody. Uh, first of all, UX for learning versus normal UX. Well, what kinds of things are going to be different? Uh, I don't have that much time, but I'll cover three kind of big areas and a few examples for each, some strategies. But designing for the cognitive side of learning. So that's the deep thinking, focus, creativity, problem solving, reasoning, not always necessarily part of other types of user experiences, right? So the kind of cognitive work that goes on with learning isn't necessarily the same kind of stuff that goes on with shopping or entertainment or socializing. Secondly, it's designing for the emotional side of learning. Turns out emotions are really important to learning, so it's good to know how they affect how we learn and how we can use that. And finally, if we're doing learning, we need to measure for learning, right? So it's not good enough to have really great user satisfaction if nobody's learning anything. So we need to be measuring that as well. So first of all, designing for the cognitive side of learning. Three things here. Rule number one, reducing extraneous cognitive load, and I'll be getting into that in more detail. Number two, we should be really thinking about including timely feedback, not just operational feedback, but instructional feedback as well. And three, we should be targeting the media and tools we're using to the learning that they should be supporting, to how our brains work when they're learning. So first, they want to look at reducing extraneous cognitive load. It's really just a big way of saying, pair things right back, because anything that's taking brain power away from the learning is going to reduce the success of that learning. So if you have extraneous things in, your, in the user experience, and maybe it's decorative graphics, maybe it's background sound, maybe it's a really cool and engaging story that actually is distracting and not relevant specifically to the learning goal, that is stuff that is using up your user's brain, so they are not going to learn as well. And there's plenty of research to back this really basic concept. Up. Now, I mean, just to make the point, even color is information that our brains need to process. So the overuse of color has been shown to decrease memory and performance, learning performance tasks. So that's just an example. 
So we really want to avoid any elements that don't directly support the learning. Now, that doesn't mean you can't use any color, you can't use any sound. And you obviously have more leeway on screens, for example, the home page, the rewards pages, or uh, promo, things like that. But when the learner is actively engaged in the learning part of the experience, that's when you really want to pair back and go totally zen, basically. Um, some other ways you can reduce load, and this is related, uh, you simplify your visuals as far back as you can. So do you really need the squishy brain there on the left? You might if this is medical students and they're going to need to dissect something and differentiate the parts. But usually you might want something in the middle if they're just learning about structures. I only needed the idea of a brain. So then you can go really abstract. So pairing things right back. What's really cool is that line drawings embrace them because research shows that we recognize the line drawing of an object as quickly as we do the photo and we remember it better. So they're actually fantastic in the learning space. So another way to reduce load, and this might sound basic, but we see uh, breaches of this all the time. Don't separate related things, okay? So here's a super com common example. We know a lot about this horse. It has letters all around it, okay? <laughs> There's an A on its head. So the terms that are relevant to this diagram are hidden away in a caption, hidden away in the text. That's fine. We can work it out. We can go, wait, what's A is over there? A is there? But that's extra work. That's extraneous cognitive load. If we can just directly label this diagram, the learning performance is going to be better. So that's a simple thing that makes a difference. And then there are other examples of this that you will begin to, to think of and come across. Now, you might say then... In books, sometimes they have no choice. There isn't enough space to fit everything in. But what's beautiful about working in the digital is that we can fit as much detail as we want. We can hide it behind a tap, behind a click. So we can really implement this keeping things next to each other concept much more easily than you would be able to in print. Next up, design for timely feedback. So we're, as usability experts, really aware that feedback, instantaneous feedback, operational feedback, really important. The additional thing with learning is that we also need to allow for rich and timely instructional feedback. As designers, we're probably not going to be writing that feedback. We probably have educators on our team, or maybe even if it's just the content people, but we need to consider them because we're probably designing the space or the screen that will allow that feedback to go in the right place at the right time. And the example here at the bottom is just related to the horse picture. This is a really typical thing. The quiz, the feedback's at the bottom. You've got to figure out what that relates to. Wait, what did I answer? What is this feedback for? Second picture, it's coming up right next to the item to which it refers. Really basic, but it actually makes a measurable difference. So now targeting the media to the learning that's going on. Well, as an example, unsurprisingly, we have been watch learning by watching people do things for thousands and thousands of years, right? So unsurprisingly, animation and video tend to be pretty great for observable skills, for gross motor skills, for watching physical procedures, watching people demonstrate something. So it's great to think about video and use it in that context. You don't get the same uh, results when you're talking about abstract concepts, things that can't actively be observed. Um, so, but definitely when you're talking about physical, think about video and animation. Of course, the big thing of the day, VR, okay. Um, VR and immersive environments. Look, the jury's still out on what works best for learning when it comes to this stuff. It's still, although not that new, still kind of new. 
So, but what we do know is that there are things that only VR and immersive environments can do or that they can do uniquely well. So I think it's fair to say that those are really good situations to consider them in. So of course, practicing dangerous things firsthand. It's really good to maybe practice surgery or bomb diffusion in a virtual world first. I mean, that's, that's a great opportunity. Um, experiencing completely inaccessible things, right? Like historical time periods, uh, places, distant places you would never be able to go. Experiencing things out of scale, diving into an atom or out into the solar system. These are beautiful opportunities that immersive environments can give, <coughs> can give us. The other cool thing they can give us is intrinsic feedback. So you're diffusing that bomb, you do it wrong, and the room explodes. This is basically the best kind of feedback you can get. It's real life consequence and it's immediate. It's intrinsic to the task. It's not just a little message popping up saying, eh, eh, you were wrong. This is why you did this wrong. It's like the room exploded. I get it. I did it wrong. One, <laughs> one thing to remember with, uh, with VR, with immersive environments, is that it's very possible, happens a lot, people engage in something really exciting in the virtual world, transfer none of that back to the real world. So transfer is a big issue here. And one thing we know about optimizing transfer is that you need to make that virtual world experience, you have to allow it to mimic the real world experience as much as is reasonable. So you need to include real world cues in your virtual world. So that when people go back out to the real world, they remember that, that, that learning that they experienced is triggered. In short, don't set your corporate skills training on an alien planet, even if it sounds like it's gonna be so much cooler that way. It probably will be, but they won't learn anything. <laughs> so now designing for the emotional side of learning, okay? Three things we can do here at the very least. Support a positive mood, support social presence, and support quote unquote good motivation. And I'll talk about that, of course. So first of all, really good news. Positive emotions lead to better learning, yay. And then you think back to your traditional school education and go, what were they thinking? So. Um, Yes, we have scientific reason to make and keep our learners happy. That's very exciting. As Don Norman put it, positive emotions are critical to learning, to curiosity, to creative thought. They actually allow us to be more thorough, more flexible, and that kind of makes sense, right? Negative emotions drive us to focus on, on the details, and we want to save ourselves, right, <laughs> if it's very negative. So how do we do that? Well, to start with, don't be negative, man. Don't stress out your learners, okay? And uh, that's kind of obvious, but at the same time, I think we've all experienced like timers and cues like you're being judged, you know, you're being surveilled. This is going on your permanent record. This is the kind of thing that isn't going to result in better learning outcomes. Next, keep your design friendly and forgiving. You want to make sure that this experience feels like a safe place, a safe place to experiment, to make mistakes, to retry. That's when learning is going to happen at its best. And finally, talking about micro interactions as we were before, consider delighters, right? And in, and in terms of the, that, that text copy, I couldn't in, uh, agree more that that micro text and how it's written can have a huge impact on the experience. So it's about putting, possibly putting personality into the messages, into the instruction, et cetera. I just want to say with regards to delighters, whether it's the monkey high fives or whatever, just be, do it sparingly, carefully. Don't interrupt the learning with these things. And always test, of course, on your users first, as you know, because your sense of humor might be slightly different than theirs. <laughs> so we also can support social presence, because like positive emotions, social presence equal be equals better learning. Fantastic. If we feel like there's other people around, we learn better. And what's really amazing is they don't actually have to even be there. 
writing in a first-person conversational tone improves learning. If we feel like somebody is talking directly to us, even though we would perfectly know this is a book, we actually retain that information better and we learn from it better. I think that's pretty amazing. So it clearly doesn't take much to trigger our social brain. So we should be leveraging this to help people learn in our experiences, right? So for one thing, if there are other users, other learners in this experience, in this environment, but they're not visible, let's make them visible. So this is just two different ways you might show the other learners that are, that are around. You could group them by interest, by location, and then allow other learners to search that network and discover each other and make connections. Or it could be as simple as that Google map down the bottom. I pulled this from an MIT-based MOOC, where the learners were basically just asked to place themselves on a map. No technical anything skill required. And yet, it really effectively shows, wow, look at all these people around the world. We're in this together. This is a group thing. And that makes a difference. Now, supporting good motivation. What's good motivation? Okay, this is a huge topic. I admit it. <laughs> I'm not going to get into motivation too much, but I'm going to, I'm going to just take the liberty of, of reducing it to an absurdly simple nutshell and say, obviously, we know intrinsic motivation is really good motivation, intrinsic to the task. I'm doing this because it's fantastically interesting. I love it in and of itself. I'm doing it because I enjoy the task itself. We also know that we're not always going to be intrinsically motivated to learn all the things that we need to learn. So if I have to learn the payroll system, maybe I'm not super excited about that. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't any ways to leverage good motivation. Another type of good motivation I like to think of as motivation that's intrinsic to being human. Technically, this is autonomous extrinsic motivation, but we won't get into that. So it's about the three keys to motivation, according to some very uh, well-evidenced theories. Connectedness, things that connect me with others, mastery or competence, things that help me to build my sense of competence, and autonomy. And autonomy has to do with the ability to influence my world and act in alignment with my goals and values. To me, these are all things that give us meaning in our lives. So when I like to think about tapping into good motivation and learning, I like to think about tapping into the meaning behind this. A really great example, I think, is one of Zen Payroll. They're now called Gusto, but they're a payroll uh, software. And payroll, again, boring, probably, right? Well, they managed to tap into the meaning behind payroll, which, as it turns out, is that it's really a celebration of people. And it's an opportunity to extend gratitude to people for all the work that they do. And they actually designed that into their software. And it was very successful. They designed payroll as a celebration. So taking that as inspiration, looking at your learning and going, what is the meaning behind this here? How can I tap into that? Because that's motivating. Sometimes it's really uh, kind of visual details can actually be quite important in this area. So example, you have to make a, a, a writing game for kids. You could style it as a race because races are fun and comp competing is fun. But is that what's intrinsically motivating about writing? No. And in fact, it's going to prime them to think about speed and winning and efficiency. And that's probably not going to get really good writing results. You could style it as like, I don't know, Middle Earth, some sort of wizard we may have heard of, or just fantasy, adventure. These are things that actually have a much better chance of tapping into the idea of the world, the character, all the stuff that's really exciting intrinsically about narrative and about story. Now, of course, again, there isn't always going to be a really obvious 
intrinsic excitement about what your, your topic is. But one thing I would say is go to the people, the nerds, that are passionate about your topic and see what they get so excited about, and you can get some ideas from that, right? Other than that, you go back to those three keys. How can this relate to connectedness, goals and values, autonomy, competence, and mastery? So finally, we come to measuring success. When it comes to learning, we need to actually measure for the learning itself. And doing that well is all about starting with the right objectives. So, a basic principle of educational design is that you need to start with a very clear learning objective before you do anything else. And they usually look something like this. By the end of the experience, the learner will be able to. Not the learner will know, not the learner will understand, not the learner will believe, but actually be able to. And that's important because it forces us to be very specific and measurable. Even if you think, no, I really just want them to know something. <laughs> What do you mean by that, right? And luckily, we have people like Benjamin Bloom who've given us these famous taxonomies, such as this one here, Bloom's taxonomy, that really break down the different types of learning we might be talking about. If you just want them to know, maybe really you're just talking about, I want them to remember this. But maybe you want them to also understand what they're remembering, or maybe apply what they've come to understand. Maybe even analyze, evaluate, or at the very top, create their own new thing based on everything they've learned. So these are really useful, not just because they help us think differently about what we might otherwise just call learn or know, but because they come with verbs. Yay. There's a lot of these tables out on the web with a lot more verbs, but this is just an example. These verbs help us to write really good learning objectives. And not just write the objective, but once we look at these verbs, it's very easy to jump from one of these verbs to design options, right? So if I know that my learners are going to have to recognize something, I can immediately start thinking of recognition-type practice you know, tasks. Or if they have to classify, oh, maybe that's a drag and drop. Or if they have to know how to create something, oh, I can get them to build a prototype or program something from scratch or et cetera. So they really help us to then trigger ideas about what kinds of learning experiences we can facilitate. And I think that's pretty exciting. And what you also get is, is, is ideas for how you're going to measure it. So what the learning objective really does is that it tells us how we will know that they have learned so they'll have to demonstrate a tango move. OK, we'll know then that they've learned if they can actually do that. And then that helps us to understand how we can get them there, how, how they will actually learn. Well, if they're going to have to demonstrate the tango move, well, maybe they'll need to practice it. Maybe they'll, we'll need to give them the steps. Maybe we'll need to go uh, step by step, et cetera. You get the idea. So really, in a sense, I've just ended at the beginning. Before you do anything else, make sure you have beautifully designed learning objectives, and everything else can follow from there. If you are interested in this topic and you want more details, there's heaps more strategies and detail in my book, Interface Design for Learning. Other than that, feel free to ask me questions on Twitter. And thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.